Welcome to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith. On this episode, we'll dive into a topic that's been causing quite a stir amongst farmers, tar spot. From Georgia to Canada, Pennsylvania to Kansas, this pesky fungal disease has been impacting corn crops, leading to concerns about yield and quality. Brad Hammes, Helena product specialist from Iowa, explores strategies to help combat this nasty disease. Then we're going to travel to Nashville to catch up with Jody Lawrence to get some insider tips on how the recent bombing of the port along the Danube River in Ukraine is impacting agriculture exports and imports throughout Central Europe and around the world. And finally, we head down to the bayou to visit with Helena product manager James DeMoss from Louisiana for an in-season update on Helena's powerful enzyme technology with VersaShield and see how it's performing in Cajun country. During this interview, James and his intern from Mississippi State will share some in-season updates on how Zypro is performing for growers in this region. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. And on this episode of FieldLink, we're going to visit with Brad Hammes. Brad is a product specialist for the Helena Products Group based in Iowa. And we're going to focus on tar spot. And uh, Brad, welcome to FieldLink. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here today. Brad, uh, you know, you've you've been uh, involved with agriculture for a very long time, worked several different roles. And we've got a fairly new disease kind of floating out there. And, uh, you know, growers across the Midwest have certainly seen that uh, from time to time here in the last couple of years. But tar spot, Brad, it's really starting to explode and be recognized across not just the Midwest, but across the all of really much of North America. Tell us a little bit about tar spot. Sure. It's, it's starting to have a, actually a pretty decent history for us, Bill, where uh, I think the last time when I was working specifically with uh, the state of Wisconsin, we started seeing that. That had to have been at least five or six years ago now that we really started to see it come into America uh, in that really centered in that Great Lakes region at that point was where it had its first footprint for us. And it's just continued to expand uh, as far west as the Dakotas, as far east as I'm sure Ohio and, and most likely Pennsylvania. Um, and, and it has been the most devastating new corn disease as far as yield loss potential um, that we've had since I started my career. I mean, I, I don't know that I would say it's as bad as what maybe gray, gray leaf spot was when it had some pretty direct devastating impacts in the 80s. Um, but I've not seen uh, corn disease that could take 50 to 60 bushels off a of yield um, in my career. This has been a new one, and it's it's been interesting to learn about. Uh, it's been unfortunate in some ways to see how it has spread, but it's also good to know that we've got some management steps that we can take that really can help to mitigate that risk. And there's a lot of new things that have come out in the past couple of years that are really helping us to get a handle on that. Well, that's great. So, so Brad, how can a grower recognize whether he or she has tar spot and, and what does it look like? Sure. It's, it's, uh, it's unmistakable once you get to see it. And it literally, in, in many ways, ag agronomists, and I, I still consider myself one of those, we're very creative, Bill. Uh, so if you ever hear of a disease, it probably looks like exactly what it sounds like. So when we named white mold or brown spot, that is a very descriptive name and tar spot it is, is as well. It looks like a shiny black raised lesion on the corn leaf. Uh, it looks like a little speckle of tar uh, on that leaf. And when you get those speckles, they'll start to kill the tissue around them. So they'll get a halo of, of uh, 
yellowing and dying tissue around them, and that'll coalesce with uh, hopefully not too many other lesions on the leaf and really, really do a number on taking out the vascular system of that plant and making it so that, uh, A, we see really early plant death when we have bad infections from tar spot, but it, it can disrupt the ability of that plant to move its nutrients and energy into the ear during, during grain fill. Uh, and just like I said, cause that really rapid plant death when we have it bad in a field. Yeah, rap- rapid plant death's kind of the key there because that's really a critical time where it's really impacting yield. But it can also, in fact, uh, impact, I guess, the stability of corn stalks, correct? Oh, sure, yeah. And, and that has to do with, once again, how we translocate grain and, and what we're doing to clog and, and start to diminish the vascular tissue in the corn plant. And so we can start to see pretty poor sustainability in the fall. Uh, and the other thing that we've we've learned about it, you know, the genesis of tar spot came from Mexico, where it was where it was previous to it being in, in the United States. And in Mexico, it was always a two pathogen disease. There's the the main disease that causes the lesion that we would see, and then there was a secondary disease, and they always infected the plant together to cause the results they did. Well, that secondary pathogen has not been identified, to my knowledge, in America yet. But tar spot has found ways of working with, and that's a, a poor way of phrasing it, but, but working in conjunction with the diseases that we currently have. So more often than not, when we get tar spot, we also see gray leaf spot. We also see northern corn leaf blight. We also see one of those other corn uh, foliar uh, fungal diseases come into that plant. And that's part of why I think it can be uh, so devastating to yields is because it's not just the one, but you get the both. And then that plant really struggles to try to put out its ear and that causes an increased cannibalization that we see those those uh, diminishing stock strength. Yeah, definitely a compounding effect uh, with all of those diseases. So, Brad, you know, typically what what kind of environment where where does tar spot really uh, uh, really take off? You know, what's the perfect environment for that uh, particular disease? I think of the perfect environment, and maybe not knowing exactly how it came into America, it landed sure in the right spot. It likes a little bit cooler conditions. Um, and it likes moisture. And so it's not unlike a lot of other fungal diseases, but that's one of the things that we've learned really over this past season and through the 22 crop is that we used to, there used to be guidance that we had to have a mild temperature, especially during that infection time period. And we had to have, I believe it was seven hours of leaf wetness. But what we found now is that you, if you have seven to 10 hours of high humidity, that can be enough moisture in the air to allow for that infection. And so it doesn't even have to be a rain, but if we have high dew points that, that go from the overnight into the mid morning, that certainly can be enough enough moisture for that disease to, to infect the plant and, and start that life cycle. And so if you think about really um, what we often have with our overnight temperatures in the Midwest, that's a pretty big footprint that could be impacted. I, I could see maybe even a little bit further to the east of the Corn Belt might be a, a good environment then maybe to the west where they start to get a little bit drier and maybe don't have those dew points. But we've seen it uh, we've seen it expand its footprint here pretty quickly. And, and I guess just on that environment piece, uh, now that it seems like that high pressure system that's dominated our weather and kept us hot through June seems to be diminishing and we're getting more rainfall and more humidity returning across a lot of the Midwest. And that forecast if we if we do truly get into that El Nino cycle would be for a cooler than average and wetter than average August and that really does shape up for 
an increased level of risk for infection from tar spot if you have that inoculum in your field or in your county uh, it, it certainly can move it's if you haven't seen it, if you didn't see it last year, that doesn't mean that you can't see it this year by any Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, you know, Brad, there's some resources out there. I know I found a website uh, that I've been referencing, ipmpipe.org. ipmpipe.org is a great resource because it pulls up a, a map of much of North America, and it'll tell you where tar spot has been identified. And and Brad, I just pulled up the 23 map here and looking at it right now. We're ranging as far as on the south side in a couple counties in Georgia, uh, in southern Georgia. They've been identified with tar spot right now. And obviously you you in Iowa, uh, Iowa uh, definitely uh, some counties in Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, of course, Indiana, um, as well as as far north into Ontario, Canada. So uh, this this disease is right now in 23 crop is, is really and it's early it's it's this is mid June or July excuse me um, the timing is is really getting ready to explode here pretty soon based on these weather patterns you referenced yeah it sure seems like it and there's another reference or another uh, tool that I like to use as well that is part of the information network that I believe feeds into that information uh, but the University of Wisconsin has created a weather modeling app called Tar Spotter that you can download uh, on whatever type of mobile device you have. Um, but in those, you can select certain, uh, you can pick a field that you're interested in or a, a location that you're interested in. And then based off of the temperature and humidity readings and the weather forecast for that day, it'll apply climate models and give you a risk factor for that, that disease environment, right? That environmental part of that disease infection triangle. Uh, and we were, I was in central Illinois last week and we pulled up the, a field right next to the building that we were in, and it had a 57% chance risk of infection based on the weather conditions that day. And that goes back to having, once again, humidity coming back across a lot of the Midwest here in these past couple of weeks. Wow, those are, that sounds like a great resource. And, and, and listen, Brad, let's drop those links in the podcast uh, platform for growers to go ahead and access uh, the ipmpipe.org. Uh, is one which really kind of tells you the story of where things are at currently, but your predictive model with uh, the University of Wisconsin, Tar Spotter. Okay, and we can encourage growers to go ahead and download those or take a look at those to get, you know, some up-to-date information there. And of course, lean on their Helena representative. Uh, they've got uh, good insight as well. Of course, uh, they're in the fields daily here uh, in your local area, and we want you to lean on them as a resource as well. So Brad, what can growers do to if they anticipate, uh, you know, uh, tar spot being in the field or if they have it in their field, what are some things they can do to either protect or prevent uh, this disease? Sure. And on the, you know, the early season time, we're past the decision point. But if you start seeing tar spot this year, uh, there there are not any resistances and genetics that we've been able to identify yet across the different seed platforms. But there certainly are some differences in how well one hybrid versus another might handle tar spot. So you can certainly work with your Helena representative, your seed representative, and try to get a, a good handle of, of which genetics in their lineup might do a little bit better defensively against tar spot. But going back to where we are now and, and being out into that mid-July timeframe, uh, most of the crop is tasseled at this point. I, say, I would say the general guidance is that R2 time frame or, or visually if you start to see brown silks the ears probably in that r2 timing uh, that's going to be your number one spot 
to, to manage it. And for folks that might may or may not have a lot of past history with tar spot, that might be all you need. And, and so I would recommend going with your top tier fungicide in that application. Um, from Helena, I've, I've seen fantastic results from our fungicide Odyssey. It's a three motive action fungicide that's done a very good job in those tar spot environments. But for some areas, and like I mentioned earlier, tar spot in an untreated environment has the, the capability of taking 50 to 60 bushels out of your yields. Um, sometimes even without a second application, you're still going to have 10 to 20 bushel yield loss. And that was the case of two years ago in Illinois, where the fields that only sprayed once still lost 10 to 20 bushels more than those fields that were sprayed twice. And with our current commodity markets, that's certainly an application that that provides a really strong return on investment to a grower. Uh, so if you are in an area that seems to be having a really bad go of, of tar spot or your environmental conditions are, are really conducive to it this year, um, you know, for this year, the management would be to make that second application and, and you need to be three weeks. And that's really critical. The, the, Yield data that's been done on the with the research trials around tar spot have shown that if you continue to be in that uh, conducive environmental condition, you can spray at 20 days, you can spray at 21 days, but if you wait until 22 days, you may have had some infection at that point. So it is pretty critical there. The data shows that that timing is, is pretty important for 21 days after that initial application. And you can come back in that second pass with you know, if you're going to go at R2 with that with a premium fungicide like an Odyssey, you can come back in that second pass with a more economic option, like maybe an Averis 2XS. Uh, you still want to look for a two mode of action, a, a Strobe or a Group 11 plus an additional group. Um, it's possible that the Group 11s are what's doing the work, but there hasn't been research into the single mode of action Group 11 fungicides regarding tar spot control. Uh, so if we're going to really try to do this thing right, make sure that we're, we're making good decisions, we should still probably stay with that two mode of action fungicide for that second application. Um, if this was another year and you were looking further into the future and we hadn't yet tasseled, um, but we're starting to see tar spot come in, even in that circumstance where we would, might consider a two application program, we would still keep our premium application around that R2 or, or brown silk timing, but we would instead then maybe slide our our application, our, our more economic application to a V10 to V14, that, that pre-tasseling application to really give us that window of control if we were starting to see that infection period earlier in the year. Um, you know, and not obviously this year because of the timing, that, that opportunity is already behind us. And I, and I think the disease infection cycle this year would support coming in at, at that typical R2 timing with your premium fungicide. And then, like I said, following up, if we maintain the same conditions that it looks like our, our weather pattern likely will have this year, really keep an eye on that tar spotter app and evaluate your risk factors going into that three weeks post first application to see if we still have, have that opportunity uh, for a disease infection. And that goes back to Understanding the, the growth cycle of corn where we still have, even after we have dent in our crop, that plant is still putting more, more weight into the grain. And so we have 10% of our yield yet to determine even after dent. So there's a lot of bushels 
being determined even into that R4, R5 timing. So it's, it's important to protect the crop even late into the year from tar spot. Whereas a lot of other diseases, if you see that later infection time period, it's not gonna be as detrimental. But like I mentioned earlier, with how quickly tar spot can kill a plant, if you were to have a, a late R4 infection uh, and have that plant die very rapidly while it was still trying to fill grain, now you're out potentially 10 plus bushels on that acre. And so that's why that, that late application is certainly something that we need to consider if there's that agronomic need because the environmental piece is, is a risk for us yet. Okay, Brad. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on this uh, episode of FieldLink and sharing some further insight on tar spot and the impact that it could have for growers across the Corn Belt and really across the United States this year. Thanks for joining us, Brad. All right. Thanks a lot, Bill. And welcome back to Field Lincoln. Now we're going to run over to Nashville as Jody Lawrence joins us. Jo- Jody, boy, we've had a lot going on this weekend. Uh, we got three big factors going on across the globe as it relates to impacting the global grain markets. What are those three things? Hey, Bill, it's good to be back. Uh, this seems like the never-ending saga of what's going on in the Black Sea. We've been dealing with this for 17 months now. You're over 525 days in the war, and you had Chicago, uh, September Chicago wheat trade limit up today, up the full 60-cent limit on news that Russia has now expanded their plan of attack into other uh, Black Sea ports, and this one is at the mouth of the Danube River, which not only hurts Ukraine, but hurts all of uh, Eastern Europe and any commerce that's coming in and out of the Danube as it flows kind of into the, the central west part of the Black Sea. They had been off limits until the end of the grain deal, but now Russia clearly wants to take the fight in a different direction, which brings up two very unique and very troubling parts of, you know, just the uncertainty is if Ukraine decides that they want to uh, advance their counteroffensive, you've got the Sea of Azov and the bridge that connects Crimea, which is a prime target. And if Ukraine was able to blow up that bridge or at least disable it, then that would hamper 25 to 30 percent of Russia's ability to export their grain. And if Russia miscalculates and overshoots a couple at the Danube, you've got several NATO members who are neighbors uh, that the Danube fl- uh, flows through. And if NATO gets, if a NATO country gets uh, advanced upon, the way I understand the doct- doctrine is that you're basically uh, declaring war on the re- of all the rest of the NATO countries. So it's, uh, yeah, today's in the market reaction is not surprising, but it, it's very troubling and just a bigger world safety issue. Yeah, Jody, you know, uh, I think, you know, for the last 500 plus days, we've talked about the port of Odessa, but it's really important for our listeners to understand how important the Danube River is to this part of Europe. Uh, it, it's 
it's really kind of like, you know, you and I chatted a little bit. Uh, this port is a little bit like the New Orleans to the United States, and the Danube's a lot like the Mississippi or the Missouri River. I mean, this thing, this river goes all the way through Austria, Slovakia, Hungary, Croatia, Serbia, uh, Moldova, uh, Bulgaria, and, of course, the Ukraine. It's moving products, certainly grain, out of the country, but but the other things that are going to be impacted is getting product up the river, too. So that's going to impact a, a huge, huge portion of really trade amongst that part of the world. Yeah, and you you know you think about all of the basic necessities that we found out during COVID get, can get stuck on ships. But if we just keep this in an agricultural perspective, the flow of fertilizer then becomes, as we get to late summer and we talk about fall application availability uh, and just, you know, the million other things that became ripples last year when we started to worry about heading into the winter, what this war and the repercussions of it could do. So this really adds, uh, you know, uh, much more tension to our markets and to the world uh, political situation than we had, you know, we've seen in the, you know, since this whole thing started. Yeah. And clearly the markets reacted to that overnight. Uh, once this news came out across the globe, uh, how, how that port was really uh, blown up and uh, the action that's been taken on it. Uh, Jody, you know, in addition to all the global tension there, uh, you know, obviously going to impact grain exports and so forth. What are some other key factors that are impacting these grain markets right now? Well, it will we'll stay with U.S. weather because normally on July 24th, that's about all we ever talk about, at least in years past. And the fact that you're going to get some 100 plus degree days all the way through late this week, everywhere from Las Vegas to central Illinois, uh, when you start talking about the western and kind of the east central corn belt when you are seeing you know normal you know daily high temperatures above 100 and you know we still have 25 30% of the corn crop to pollinate and it's uh you know that that alone would be uh you know a bullish story and certainly worth keeping an eye on considering how dry may and june were uh but we've got to keep that in context with what's going on that uh the U.S. corn crop has no margin for error. We cannot, uh, without something really, really dramatic happening to price, to start rationing, you know, even the the modest amount of demand that we feel like we're seeing uh, from an export market that uh, if yield falls below 175 simply because of mother nature in the u.s then we're you know talking about seeing uh, more days like this and certainly six dollar december corn comes back in the picture if the l recent run of forecast uh do you know trend back to hotter and drier because it does mitigate the temperature with better rain chances next week which would be a godsend for a lot of the people that i spoke with in the western corn belt uh today and over the weekend yeah definitely the weather certainly impacting things that seems to be the repeating theme these top two between uh the ukraine uh, the war over there and then now mother nature treating us but jody there's another thing kind of catching a lot of attention right now impacting grain markets. What's that? Well, the crop conditions came out a few minutes ago, and they were not up as much as expected, 
but you uh, you've got 32 percent of the corn through pollination on Sunday. So, like I said, you know, in the middle of this heat, you still have a third of the crop uh, going through uh, the highest water use and the most sensitive time for actual production. Corn rating did go up didn't go up as much as expected and it's still below it's at 57 percent good to excellent but i think the state you still have to look at is in corn uh even though ratings were up three percent in illinois the state of illinois corn crop is at 45 percent good to excellent and their bean crop is at 44. everybody else around them is in better shape i wouldn't call them in fantastic shape uh with in you know the uh Gosh, the the bean rating was is still at fifty four, hovering in the low to mid fifties. Uh, the dry hot weather this week uh, is is really going to be an impact, and it won't surprise me unless we get some substantial early August rains and some cooler than average August temperatures that these ratings right now trend lower uh, all the way into you know end of season and into harvest. So. It's it, it becomes the USDA's battle then about collecting data because we've got an August crop report that's going to come up and give us some more color on what they think the national yield is. And then September becomes one where you get far more involvement from their collecting data from their test plots. Uh, so, you know, we can say it every year, but next six weeks are going to with are going to have a lot of information, a lot of volatility. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that you never think you say you will say about our markets is that the weather has become far more predictable, <clears throat> excuse me, than uh, how Russia is going to move forward in what they decide to do. To me, Russia absolutely is the biggest wild card moving forward and uh, you know, uh, certainly if, if the U.S. ends the season poorly from a weather perspective and yield does begin to drop, uh, you end up with a, a national yield under 51 on beans and under 175 on corn. That'll be a separate set of bullish issues. But uh, you tell me how how long this happens and how far Russia advances their destruction of the Black Sea. Uh, just the entire agriculture and export system. And, you know, I'll tell you whether the next, whether we have a better chance of seeing $6 wheat or $10 wheat or $6 corn or four seventy-five corn. So, so many balls up in the air right now, making predictions is difficult. But what I'm telling everybody, and this is applying more to really the Eastern Corn Belt, is if your crop looks great, and you know that you're going to make at least your insured yield, advance some sales. Corn has rallied 80 cents in this. Beans are at as good of a price as we've had all season. And wheat clearly stands on its own as people are, uh, you know, at the very tail end in some places uh, for their uh, wheat harvest. And uh, also for everybody that stored some, you're getting a wonderful opportunity uh, on, you know, a, a tragic and sad and unpredictable event, but you still have to think about your bottom line. If uh, you're going to stay in the agriculture business, you can't just uh, stick your head under a rock and say, uh, well, gosh, this is sad, but, but I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. Um, and, and Jody, you know, I guess another, uh, I guess, hot topic that came up this morning too, after all this 
turmoil of Ukraine and weather, of course, but uh, uh, soybeans, uh, you know, the, the, the bean market kind of taking a big rally as well. You mentioned earlier, the Chinese are back in the game. They took a, they took a shipment, uh, uh, and, and they've been pretty quiet, laying low here, getting sh- uh, shipments from other parts of the world. What does the global supply on soybeans look like, and what's your forecast right now? Well, this is, uh, it was rumored as much as 10 days ago, and then the daily sales, because China always buys a large enough amount, somewhere between two and four cargoes, which is somewhere between, you know, uh, four and 10 million bushels, that it shows up on the USDA daily at 8 a.m. flash reports that they release. And we didn't see any last week, although a week ago Friday, there were rumors that China was in the market. Today was that a first official confirmation. And whether the logistics are getting too expensive from Brazil or they are getting to the end of their exportable supply, because certainly Argentina is going to have to take enough to keep up with all to keep their bean processing plants and their crush facilities working because of their uh, tough year this year. You are starting to see uh, that Brazil may may have had a lot of beans, a lot more than uh, they've ever grown, but they di- they don't have an unlimited supply. And if China is coming to us, the only thing you can really kind of look back at that because it coincided, I believe, it was Secretary Blinken that went over there and spoke with Chairman Z, and they apparently had a little bit of cooling off on everything, but uh, it may be followed through, and that may be a, di- a diplomatic purchase as any as much as anything else. But then you look that China was doing military uh, exercises over Taiwan over the weekend. So, <laughs> yeah, we we've got two. Uh, Two things. One of them with our, you know, biggest again, we have conflict with our two biggest political adversaries. One of which is our largest customer, and the other is the one that basically field uh, feeds a huge portion of what you would call the, you know, the poor and the uh, malnourished part of the world. So it's uh, it's it's you know unfortunate times that we live in. But there are things that in our profession we're just going to have to deal with because uh, U.S. production here moving forward, especially if Ukraine is on the injured reserve list and not and not able to produce for you know potentially years, uh, somebody's got to make up for it. And how we do it here is going to be the big question. A lot of crazy stuff going on around the world. Jody, it was great to have you in Memphis last week at the Evolve Innovation Expo. And uh, it was great to have you on, uh, on stage spending some time with Chip Flory from Farm Journal, AgriTalk. Uh, what was your take on that experience? Oh, it was great. The, the event, always first class event when you get to go to HPG because everybody down there puts uh, your entire uh, everybody on Helena's team puts on such an uh, such a great event and seeing the products in action you know uh, in the farm and then being able to talk to the chemists and the really smart people that developed them for them is kind of a such a unique full 180 that you just don't get at every field day. So uh, the attendance was great. The weather held up. It wasn't 107 degrees, uh, thank goodness. And uh, gosh, uh, Chip and uh, was a very gracious host at the round table. He made me look smarter than I am. 
And I uh, hope everybody was able to hear that and also the interview on Brownfield. You bet. Well, we really enjoyed having you down there uh, here in Memphis, rather, uh, Jody, for uh, the Innovation Expo. And hopefully folks can catch you next round uh, on the next journey. Uh, so, uh, Jody, want to thank you again for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. And as Chip said, thanks for helping us connect the dots in the world of marketing. So thanks, Jody. Thank you, Bill. Have a great week. All right. Uh, joining me on this episode of the FieldLink uh, podcast is uh, James DeMoss. James is a product manager out of Louisiana. And Kimberly Bell, she is an agri-intelligence intern working for Helena this summer from Mississippi State. Guys, welcome to FieldLink. Welcome. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Oh, we're excited to have you guys here in Memphis today. Um, you know, coming off the uh, Innovation Expo, the Evolve Innovation Expo yesterday in Memphis, you guys were pretty integrated in that uh, uh, field experience of working the CornWise segment. Tell us a little bit about the Expo. Absolutely. Uh, I got invited to come speak at the CornWise piece. And uh, at the CornWise, we talked about our our herbicide program, Empyros, and the different formulations there. And I basically concentrated on our enzyme technologies. And the big one that we have right now <clears throat> that's being utilized in corn is Zypro. And uh, Zypro, it is an enzyme that we have been using. It's a very much protected enzyme. And at the field day, what we talked about is why enzymes. So the reason we do use the enzymes at the end of the day is if you look at the USDA, when they start talking about soil health, what is soil health? Are they looking at organic matter? No. Are they looking at a base saturation of a nutrient? No. The USDA, when, they, when they're talking soil health, they're strictly talking about an enzyme that's in the soil. So that was one of the first reasons we started going down this road with Zypro. The second reason is the handling ability, the storage ability, the shelf life, and the mixability issue that we have with enzymes. Because with an enzymes, it really doesn't matter if it's too hot, too cold. So temperature is not a variability, pH is not a variability, moisture is not a variability. And that was another reason we went. When you start dealing with living microbes, you have a lot of issues there. Basically, you have to have it in a certain flora, which they can survive. Mm -hmm. Then they have a short shelf life due to the fact is that flora is basically kind of what's keeping them alive. So their expense is about three times what you have with Zypro. So that puts us in a great cost uh, position also with enzyme technology. Then you have the mixability issues. So your living organisms, they have issues whether it's uh, too much chlorine, too much sulfur, too low a pH. Sure. Uh, even with the salt content of certain nitrogen products, it basically will take them out within a few hours of time. Uh, and so that's a lot of the reasons the, 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 they're the great technology and they're great products. It's just we don't have a good way to deliver them. Right. I mean, even if you was using water, the chlorine in the water will pretty much kill them within a couple of hours, which is not a good thing. With the enzyme technology, we don't have to do that. And so technically, what is the enzyme technology? Your living microbes is what's producing your enzymes. So why not go ahead and just get the active ingredient? Yep. And, and that's what... 
that's what Zypro is. It using that enzyme technology, correct? It's exactly right. Versus a microbial, which could, you know, it, it, it can work for sure, but has these other challenges of shelf life and handling challenges. Oh, exactly. So, I mean, like with that flora piece, if you put it in a hot warehouse, there's a potential of those jugs exploding. And we with uh, with Zypro, we have Bursa uh, Shield technology, and so that's one of the things people say. Well, you always have a lot of technologies, but what is Bursa Shield technology? It's something real. Is it just a yeah. nomenclature? Is this a new marketing term? Right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's really it's not. beyond that. It's beyond that, because at the end of the day, when you start looking at soil microbes and Enzymes, you know, a traditional enzyme in the soil only lasts about seven to ten days. Then it's pretty much run its course and it it just fades away. Diversa Shield is actually a technology that we developed that you put with this with this phospholipase enzyme that's protecting it. So basically, it's going to give it the sixty day shelf life or or sixty day in ground activity that we're seeing because at the end of the day, about of all the millions of organisms in the soil, there's a ton of bad guys that are attacking your nutrition, they're attacking fertility, they're attacking each other. The VersaShield technology is, like I always say, it's like a good defensive line. Okay. It guards and protects, and it's truly a buffer from allowing the other organisms from attacking it, so it's being very much protected. Given that 60-day piece, then it allows it to start doing the mineralization, then it starts allowing it to increase the native sorbyl microbial activity. Instead of having introducing some foreign microbial activity product, you're naturally propagating what's naturally in the soil already. So that's another great way. You know, that technology has also been lent to our other enzyme product that we have a seed treatment called inertia. So inertia is showing some really good results on the crops we're looking at. We're getting a couple of days faster response. It's uh, shanking up very a lot faster on the ground. And look, in these cold, wet days, when you first start planting beans, you know, that's a huge thing to try to get us established stand. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, we've evolved here from taking this enzyme technology and utilizing Versus Shield to help protect it. And as you mentioned, it gives a pretty good, I guess, a stable, some stability in the soil for up to around 60 days. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And that's the great thing about this is a true technology that is stabilizing. It is protecting. It is buffering it from the other things in the soil that attacks other things. It is truly protected, given it that longevity in the soil. Whereas your living organisms, look, this is the enzyme is a byproduct of the living organism. That's where it comes from. But the living organism... With, with the pH is out of whack in the soil, moisture content, temperature, it'll just nuke them and it'll take them out. The enzyme's already being taken care of. And then you get the protection from the other bad things in the soil, allowing its longevity in the soil. So, 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 so guys, uh, I'm going to pull Kimberly in here because, Kimberly, this summer you had the opportunity to really, uh, you know, we can talk about the technical aspects of enzymes and, and the benefits that Zypro brings to the grower, but you got to actually view it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of the trials and, and speak to a little bit of the area that you're working, you know, as a student, you're, you're a sophomore, correct? At yes, Mississippi sir. State? Tell us a little bit about you first. So I'm originally from South Alabama, about 30 minutes directly north of Pensacola, Florida. 
And I grew up around a lot of cotton and peanuts. So this summer I'm interning in Southwest Louisiana in a lot of crops that I've never dealt with before. So I'm dealing a lot in sugarcane, rice, soybeans, crawfish, and a little bit of corn. So it's been very interesting to be around these different crops and to learn a lot about them. Um, But every week, as a Southern Business Unit intern, we have what's called a picture of the week. And it's an assignment that every intern turns in on any HPG product. And I have had the opportunity to look at probably 20 to 30 different side-by-side comparisons of multiple different HPG products. But a lot of what I looked at is Zypro. I've looked at probably between five and 10 different Zypro comparisons, a lot of which has been on corn. And like Demos said earlier, you can see the longevity effect. I looked at some younger corn back at the beginning of June, and you can see that it had a better kickstart with Zypro that was put in furrow. Mm-hmm. And it started maturing at a faster rate. It was taller, much prettier corn, much healthier leaves and root systems. And then now that we're getting towards time to cut corn, we have been able to look at the actual ear development and the overall root development, the stalk diameter and that kind of thing. And the pollination issues have not been near as bad when they're treated with Zypro. Um, The ears are much bigger and robust. We did a comparison of one and treated ear that was either 18 or 20 around in an untreated ear that was a few rows over had about 14. And so just the diameter of the ear and the kernel uniformity on the ear is just so much better. There's not near as much tip back or pollination issues. And the husk coverage on the ear is so much better than what you would see on an untreated plant. Perfect. And, and, you know, when you're talking about, you referenced 14 around versus Mm -hmm. 18 or 20. Yes, sir. That's yield. Right. That's what matters to a grower. It's about yield. And adding Zypro in there that relieves some of that stress that you hinted to, as well as that better root growth development and overall performance of that crop is relating to yield in most cases. Right. That's awesome. And where was those trials? What were some of those trials located? In Louisiana? Yes, sir. So uh, the younger corn that I looked at was in Port Berry, Louisiana, which is a St. Landry Parish, just okay. north of Lafayette. And then the... Second, the older corn that I looked at that had the bigger ears, that was in a Voiles Parish around Alexandria. So we're seeing some consistency here is the theme. Absolutely. And, you know, we started researching Zypro in 2014. We didn't launch this product until 2019. So it's not like we had an idea of, boom, just do this. I mean, and if you go back, let's think about the hottest topic in agriculture right now. It happens to be the bioscience realm. Helen has been in the bioscience realm for over 20 years. I mean, when I first came on, we was starting to go in that direction. But this product has been worked on since 2014. And so we had all these year, years of trials, designs, you know, reconfigurations. To we figureized and we got, we got it optimized. We got the product optimized for peak performance to do what we need to do. Before we brought it to the grower. That's the key. Did all that research, third party, other folks really evaluating that product before we even brought it to the farm gate for growers to experience? Exactly. This was not something that Helena is known when we release a product, that product has been well tested. 
the minimum is three years, but it's usually four to five, sometimes even six years for a product. And as you well know, Bill, there's been some products we've had that are drawing more that just didn't make the cut sure. because it didn't show a re- return on investment. And so we actually asked those products. And, you know, people talk about some of those marketing terms. No, they're not. When people hear asset technology, they know that's going to increase a better, healthier, more vibrant root system. When we hear Versa Shield, it's just like it says it's got shield in the name. That's more of a protecting uh, product for a longer longevity within the soil. So that's kind of some of the background behind some of our terms when you see there is actually some meat to those statements. Yeah, it's a made. formulation. It's a science. It's a process that's really proprietary to the Helena Products Group. Exactly. Uh, that provides value. So when growers see it on a box, they can rest assured that there's a little something, something in there to help it perform better. When they see that, they need to know there's been multiple years of testing and technology and evaluation done before that product's ever reached their level. Sure. Kimberly, you know, let's go back to you. You you mentioned corn, and we've talked about Zypro with corn, and it certainly uh, sounds like it's performing very well for your growers in Louisiana. And as we talk to other folks across the country, Zypro's really performing well, really right. everywhere. But you also got to look at some rice. Uh, yes, tell sir. us a little bit about that experience. So I looked at some rice in Vermilion Parish, Louisiana, and um, we had, it was actually a crop duster error where some valves have shut off and there was, so it was broadcast. We had Zypro right next to untreated. And when you, we pulled these plants and you could see the difference in the root system. So you had the treated plant and it had multiple, you had like a group of three plants that just pulled up together because they were on the same root system. And it was just so robustly bigger than the untreated plant. They were much longer, much healthier, viable roots. Good, good. So really, uh, James, this uh, product Zypro can be utilized for several kinds of crops. Yeah, so this product, we have evaluated it from coast to coast, border to border. Uh, from sugarcane to sweet potatoes to soybeans to cotton, corn, uh, grain sorghum, and even wheat. And everything we put this product on, it has performed exceptionally well. The great thing about the performance is it's not only just an infurrow treatment or a side dress type treatment. We've actually started impregnating this on fertilizer and brought doing broadcast applications. That's how we've been getting it in rice which is one of the first places we started looking at it for the simple reason when you start, when you need an increased soil microbial activity, rice crop is the first thing that came to my mind because when you flood it, it goes into an anaerobic condition. So that's where we started with, and that's where we started the impregnation. Now we have people who prefer broadcast applications of all their fertility, and we're looking at that in corn. Uh, last year, we had some fields in Tennessee where we did that broadcast application with like a 14 bushel yield increase, wow. Wow. which is more than our national average of 8.4. But on our my geography, I'm seeing about a 10 to a 13 bushel yield response. So, but on soybeans, which is usually one of the harder crops to manipulate, we're seeing a consistent six bushel yield increase out of the soybeans. And what we're seeing is an extra three to four nodes of productivity that that plant's giving. Of course, the root system's a lot more viable, but the the stalk diameter's a lot bigger, but it's also giving us that extra three to four nodes. And if you think about how many plants with the extra three to four nodes and you can stack more fruit, 
you want to increase your yield. Wow, that's great. Well, um, guys, tell us a little bit about the uh, expo yesterday that you attended. You know, what was the attendance like, and what was what were some of the big questions growers had for you at your stop, James? Um, I bet you we had over two hundred people at the expo yesterday. And at my stop, one of the common questions was about Zypro, about enzyme technology. You know, why are we doing it? How are we doing it? And the responses. Uh, people really concentrated on, like, well, we don't have an inferro kit. Well, we can do it side risk. I mean, even in our national data study, the difference between an inferro application and a side risk application on corn is two tenths. On cotton, it's 10 pounds difference, whether it's infer or side risk. That's pretty consistent. And that's two different timing of applications. Uh, the other thing was we had some bean farmers and a couple of rice farmers, and we concentrated about the, that impregnation onto a dry fertilizer and broadcasting that product and the response that they're going to get. And that was a lot of the, the comments and questions that people were intrigued about is they liked the versatility of the application method of the product. Oh, that's awesome. So yesterday's Evolve Innovation Expo, we're evolving. And uh, one of the products that was introduced was also an enzyme product for soybeans, for soybean treatment called Inertia. James, you've got to touch and feel this product a little bit this year. Tell us uh, what are some of your initial perceptions? So the Inertia product, people, first thing I think, well, it's it's just enzyme. It's the same as Zypro. It's not. Zypro is a phospholipase enzyme. And nurse is a cellulase-based enzyme. And so we, we put it out there in some tough conditions. <clears throat> we actually put it in some late March planted beans. And we had we compared it against the full, the best seed treatment in the market. And then we just literally just threw the inertia piece in there. Okay. And we seen about a three-day faster emergence. And then once it came out of the ground, it just continued to grow and grow and grow. It took over four weeks for the other beans right next to it to ever catch up with it. The root development was amazing. Just the, the, the most impressive part was the evenness of emergence. When everything emerged, it was totally even. Where the other one, even though it had a great seed treatment on it, it was sporadic in its emergence. And then when it came out, it never looked back. The color was better. The roots were bigger. The stalk diameter was bigger. And look, think about it in a stressful situation. The faster you can get a plant development and off to growing, the more impact and the better you're going to have for a yield availability. It's going to increase your yield just because if that thing is healthy when it starts off, it's not struggling, it's not, and it's going to think increase yield. And we've seen the increased yield, but it's been very impressive. It's very showy. This is one of these things that is true eye candy to a grower. Well, and all of that, it just feels like this product, from my understanding, is it's about convenience. This is super convenient. Oh, this is, you know, it's like, well, some people, not everybody fertilizes soybeans. Right. So the, the convenience part, this is a seed treatment. Mm -hmm. Very low expense ratio, once again. You put it on your seed. Everybody's pretty much uh, treating their seed of right, soil. Right. So the convenience factor is there. We got the VersaShield technology. So here's the other thing. There's some other companies <clears throat> with a living enzyme product that are doing seed treatments. Okay. But here's the thing. If you actually put in a, uh, an inoculant or even put a fungicide on there, you're killing those living organisms. Mm. With the enzyme technology, it's already dead. Yeah. It's it, it's going it's you're not going to affect it, so you can put your inoculant, you can put your fungicide, you can put your insecticides, 
and have feel safe and guaranteed that you're going to get the performance of the product at about a third of the cost at some of the competition once again. And the other competition with the living organisms, they're having issues because once you put that fungicide, insecticide, and these, and look, inoculants are a living organism as well, which would attack the, what they're trying to apply. So versatility, the easeability, and it comes already prepackaged. It's already treated on the seed. It's just a way to, it's really easy to deal with. Put it in the box and go. Put it in the box and go. You know, one of the things that often we, you know, in season, springtime, you know, rolls around, we're dealing with Mother Nature. And if you have a living organism in a plant or not, I can't tell you how many times growing up in Nebraska that, you know, you'd be planting and here comes the big storm and you're out. You're out for two or three days. Those organisms, if you have them in your in your starter and whatever, it's done. It's over with. It's done. I mean, because even on the seed treatment piece, if you do get rained out, or guess what? You thought you could plant and you can't. And it sits in that seed tender, and that seed tender is drawing heat. That heat is one of the things that living organisms are susceptible to. Our enzyme technology isn't. Again, more flexibility, more convenience, uh, you know, and, and, and it's really what the Helena Products Group is really all about. How can we provide value to the grower in a more efficient and effective way uh, and just, just saving them more time exactly. and saving them more money? And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the, the field day yesterday was the Evob Innovation Expo. That could not have been termed a better, te- better term for this field day uh, for the simple reason we're having to evolve in our agriculture aspect. We're having to look into the future. We're trying to stay on top of the things that's most important to growers, the most things that can provide the most impact with the least expense. And that's part of our evolution. 20 years ago, who would have talked about a, a seed treatment that contained an enzyme that would do that would increase natural soil health? Sure. That was not even thought of. That's where Helena is staying on the cutting edge and staying in front. So Evolve, our company's definitely evolving. And at the end of the day, with the evolution that we're that Helen is going forth, sustainability is the next thing. The only way we're gonna keep agriculture sustainable is strictly by continuing to stay in front of the farmer, listening to our growers, and evolving to the next era of technology like we've always done. That's great. Great stuff uh, from uh, James DeMoss, a Helena product uh, manager out of Louisiana. Uh, Kimberly Bell, uh, one of our interns out of Mississippi State University studying agronomy. Well, uh, I want to thank you both for coming in today and spending time with us to learn a little bit more about enzyme technology, a little more about the uh, Innovation Expo and the Cornwise stop that you managed yesterday. Thank you both for joining us here on FieldLink. Thank you for the invitation. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of FieldLink. Be sure to join us and subscribe to the FieldLink podcast wherever you get your podcasts.